Hey guys, Jim Cox, Devon Financial Partners, Park Avenue Securities, and I'm here today with an interview with Amy Brady. Um, she is a publicist with the Chicago Review of Books and a couple of other titles as well, and really involved in the art scene in terms of looking at climate change and other social issues and this really kind of hits home because I've some of you may know like I'm a wannabe painter I do watercolors on my own but I my favorite period of artwork is really 1920s and 30s Weimar Germany um, and the artists that came out of that age in terms of kind of confronting the politics and what was going on in that age and trying to kind of hold up a mirror to society. And, you know, my question's always been, where are the artists in our age that are filling that role, that are making us more responsible as citizens? And, uh, you know, I found Amy is one of those people leading that movement. So, Amy, thanks for taking the time to chat today. Uh, I'm actually an editor, <laughs> and I just I just wanted to say that because in the publishing world, that's a pretty important distinction, uh, and, um, you know, all of the great and wonderful writers out there, um, I'm sorry, I can't publicize your book. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha, my mistake. Yeah, no, no worries, no worries. So what, uh, what's your background, Amy? Um, you mentioned you work with a couple of uh, organizations in the work that you do.
That's amazing because, uh, I mean, I'm in this space, but I guess more from the investment and the kind of business side of it. And honestly, I haven't seen those artistic expressions. Um, so it's good to hear that they're actually, that that is taking place. activities that uh, you organized a program at the uh, New York Public Libraries called uh, Art and Activism in the Anthropocene uh, Era. Um, And it was earlier this year. I'm sorry that I missed that because I would have loved to have attended that. check those out. Do you plan on redoing the program in the future? takeaways that artists um, were able to kind of come away with and once they get together and start talking about the subject was it I mean were there lessons to be learned is there kind of shared experience or something that they can learn from each other yeah yeah 
much of them uh, talked about empathy mm. and you know the need for empathy in the world in general, <laughs> but also you know specifically when it comes to the issue of climate change, you know empathy for um, you know the earth and for other human beings. Um, you know it, it's a it's, it's a fact of of um, you know the way our world is structured that our most vulnerable populations around the world are going to be impacted first and hardest by climate change and so empathy for them you know and of course empathy for you know non-human living things like you know the animals and plants that are also going to start experiencing mass die-offs because of climate change in fact some already have experienced this and so as we were having this discussion about this need for empathy, it just kind of arose that, you know, kind of that artists see their role uh, in this conversation um, as people who can help evoke empathy through their artwork. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing for somebody to read a scientific report and to see the facts uh, about climate change, but you know, clearly <laughs> that is not working, at least not in the United States, where climate change um, remains a highly political issue and a large percentage of people, um, you know, still deny it even exists. So, um, you know, th that, that clearly isn't doing the job. Um, so artists are thinking, well, maybe the answer then is not to try to communicate with these people just through the mind, but also through the heart, and to get them to connect to this on a mo more emotional level. And so, um, yeah, and so novelists are trying to do that, poets are trying to do that, teachers, um, theater artists, you know, trying to create, you know, cultural artistic expressions um, that relate to climate change that actually move people to do something mm -hmm. uh, while, you know, while, while also being, you know, worthy objects of art in their own right. Yeah, I mean, um, in that regard, I guess the, uh, the thing that really kind of lit the fire for me, I guess, was an inconvenient truth, right? I mean, it was... Um, oh, sure you know, a documentary, but it was put together in a way which really brought the subject home and then tying it together at the end with the uh, Melissa Etheridge song and uh, as a kind of an anthem for what mm -hmm. needs to be done. Um, the challenge, though, is I, I think so many people go through life without empathy and... You know, the challenge is to, how do you teach empathy to, you know, populations that don't have that experience of empathy, whether they've, you right. know, gone through traumatic um, circumstances or they just haven't, don't have the experience to kind of develop empathy. Um, right. They, a person really needs to be ready to accept the information to be able to, to be empathetic. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, I think it's just a frustrating fact of American society right now, you know, that we're not doing a whole lot of listening to each other and trying to be open mm. <laughs> to each other's ideas. Um, and unfortunately, 
you know, the issue of climate change is kind of being caught up in, in this kind of combative, closed-off atmosphere that, um, that you know, is, is kind of taking hold of the country right now. Um, and, it's, and it's such a shame, um, you know, especially as, you know, the, the rest of the world is moving forward with, you know, the Paris Accord. <laughs> you know, the United States is still kind of, you know, digging its heels in, at least at the federal government level. And it's, um, it's really frustrating. And, and that kind of denial or unwillingness to act is, uh, you know, has trickled down, you know, into, you know, other aspects of society. And it's, it's very frustrating. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the federal government is obviously opting out at this point, but, you know, states and really local communities are really at the forefront of still pushing forward change, whether it's local communities here, I know in Pennsylvania that are doing it, local towns, or, you know, California obviously is a leader in that regard as a state, um, mm-hmm. Oregon, Washington, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely, and thank goodness for it. <laughs> what um, One of the uh, challenges is, I think, and I, I, I think you're right on about empathy. I think that's the key to everything in terms of being successful, in terms of getting everybody on onto the same page. Uh, the challenge is when you go through a period of severe change like we're looking at because of climate change, whether it's in terms of, you know, uh, loss of food crops due to heat, um, migration and civil war issues due to unrest in different parts of the world because of climate stress. You know, you end up with a lot of fear um, by people who are seeing what's happening or going through that. And, you know, it's, it's going to be a challenge to take that extra step to convey empathy. any simple answer you know if there were we, we probably would have found it by now yeah um you know i do think that you know climate novels in particular are um are really helpful in that regard and many of the cli-fi authors that i've spoken with have um said something similar which is that you know they they hope that narratives like theirs can help readers to imagine, um, you know, what a world looks like if, um, you know, climate change, you know, does, you know, meet our most catastrophic predictions, Um, you know, and to try to kind of, you know, think through, you know, is this the kind of future that we really want to bring about, or is there another path? Um, And if so, you know, what would that path look like? And that's, that's the beauty of, of literature. You know, it's, it's about imagining new worlds and new futures. And even when it's, you know, dystopian literature and it's, you know, the worst future you can imagine, there is some comfort, I think, to be taken in the knowledge that that future hasn't necessarily happened yet. And that um, the mere fact that we can imagine it means that maybe it's possible. So let's do everything we can do to not make it happen. Um, you know, I, 
I, literature by no means is going to cure climate change, but, you know, the more and more I read it and look into what it's doing, you know, the more I appreciate what these writers are achieving, and I'm so happy that um, this has been a trend that has really taken off. Is there a uh, substantial... Is there a substantial difference between um, international artistic expression and artistic expression in the United States? Mm, great question. Um, not necessarily, and I'll tell you why. And it's because the majority of climate fiction, at least that I have encountered, is still all largely from a Western perspective. Uh-huh. And, you know, and so, you know, the, the authors that, um, that, you know, I have become aware of who are writing climate fiction who are not writing from the United States are still from Western Europe, from Great Britain, from Australia, and, um, you know, and, and have a largely uh, Western and a white Western perspective at that. I think that's going to change. Um, you know, I think having, um, you know, the, the writer and thinker Amitav Ghosh's perspective in this conversation is going to, to help things. Um, you know, he's a brilliant, uh, a brilliant novelist and, um, his, you know, recent nonfiction book, The Great Derangement, um, draws a lot of really interesting conclusions about why climate change exists and how kind of the uh, publishing world uh, at large is, you know, either supporting or not <laughs> supporting some of these types of novels. And, um, you know, it, it ruffled a lot of feathers, and uh, I'm glad that it did. Um, because I think people, you know, how whether you agree with, you know, Ghosh's conclusions or not, I think people are actually starting to look at how, you know, the publishing world works. And um, I think more than ever, people are starting to become interested in non-Western voices and, um, you know, how they uh, can be heard in, con- in all kinds of conversations, you know, including ones about climate change. Hmm. That's good. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the, the challenge is really, you know, areas like, you know, India, Southeast Asia, Africa are really going to be, uh, Latin America are going to be way more impacted, um, sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, and, oh, yeah. It, yeah, I'm just curious how it's being reflected in, in those societies. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I was actually having a conversation with a colleague the other day about uh, about this very topic of, you know, where are the, um, the books about climate change from non-Western voices? And as we talked, something dawned on me. And I think that there are at least a couple of other things um, that need to be taken into consideration here. And one is that when a novel suddenly becomes not just about climate change, but also about, say, immigration issues, um, because, you know, climate change is going to be a huge catalyst um, for immigration. It already has been, and it's going to become a much larger one as we start seeing climate refugees from all around the world. 
Well, the thing about immigration is that it's an enormous and multifaceted issue in its own right. And as soon as a novel starts addressing it, then um, it starts to become marketed as and spoken about as an immigration novel instead of a climate fiction novel. And so it occurred to me as I was thinking about this that I wonder how many novels are out there right now that have been touted as immigration novels that haven't really reached my radar screen because they're not being talked about as climate fiction novels. And, um, you know, I, that's kind of something in the next few months that I kind of want to take upon myself, you know, as a critic and a writer and an editor, you know, to look for stories that, you know, do address climate change, but through a lens of, say, immigration or border policy, um, or, you know, other, other politicized ideas that, you know, non-Western people are also going to be facing because of climate change. Uh, that's awesome. I would look forward to uh, what you find with that because uh, I think that's going to be important for everyone in the West to, again, develop that empathy for what others are going through that are, are right. being displaced or in the process of really in the front lines. Um, I'm curious, is, it would seem like this is like prime fodder for, you know, a liberal arts course for integrating arts with, you know, science and politics. Like, Mm -hmm. is there a, an existing course that does that? Because that would really kind of be a, really a good starting point for people to start developing empathy like that sort of integration of information on different topics. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I there's a couple of uh, things that come to mind. One is there is a professor at NYU who um, I also consider a good friend. Her name is uh, Dr. Eugenia uh, Kitchen, and she um, teaches an undergraduate course um, called something like Art and activism or art in the Anthropocene, something something to that effect. The the name of the exact course is escaping me. But um, but it's a, a wonderful course that uh, you know pulls from many different disciplines to um, you know kind of teach students about you know how climate science and art is um, you know can can really use each other to communicate uh, interesting and important ideas about climate change and art <laughs> hmm. um, and, you know, and, can, and can culminate in a kind of activism. Um, so her course, I think, is really important, and I'm so glad that it exists. Um, you know, Elizabeth Rush, who uh, I know has appeared previously on your podcast, um, you know, has also taught a course on climate fiction. Oh. Um, and so she uh, is also... Um, you know, somebody who is really thinking about, you know, how the arts are speaking to this issue. And, you know, while I can't think of other specific professors teaching courses, you know, I have spoken with students who are recent graduates of Brown University um, who are really interested in how the arts and the sciences can intersect. you know, uh, to, to talk about issues of climate change. So um, clearly they are getting an education where, you know, both of these, um, 
uh, these disciplines uh, or these fields are are being talked about in um, really connective ways. Mm. So yeah, so they definitely exist. Um, it's been a while since I've looked, but I remember um, doing an internet search a few months ago just to see what type of syllabi might be out there that are uh, teaching explicitly climate fiction, and there were a few that came up. So it's definitely something that's starting to catch on, um, and uh, I'm so excited to see it. That's um, awesome. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think it's, it's really great. No, I will say, you know, as someone who came out of the academic world, um, there are people who have been, at least in, in the literary world, which is, you know, the, the world that bored me, um, they, they have been looking for decades at how literature can address, you know, ecological concerns. So, you know, kind of looking at the, you know, the environment and climate change and ecology through a lens of literature isn't really a new concept. But it does seem relatively new um, in terms of teaching that lens to students and just kind of talking about that lens outside of academic circles. Um, I'm certainly not the only person doing this, but there don't seem to be that many of us, (laughs) at least not yet. Um, So... uh, What role do you think uh, spirituality plays in terms of um, artists being able to connect or create material related to social or ecological change? Um, you know, we live in an age where it seems that um, the ability to uh, speak out or the ability to protest is kind of coming under pressure um, from more conservative elements. And that's kind of the, I think that's one of the reactions to what we see happening with, again, migration and, um, you know, some of the other issues around climate change, um, you know, how do artists then 
overcome or, you know, resist that pressure from, you know, larger forces to kind of pipe down and, and still speak their voice? <laughs> and, and activity so um, you know there there isn't nearly uh, the, the kind of protest that you you would be you're, you're referencing happening here in the city um, but you know I'm originally from Topeka Kansas mm. uh, you know it's, it's about as red as a state as states get and um, you know I'm I'm sure that there are artists there who uh, you know have encountered some kind of, of derision toward their work, you know, whether it's in a formal, you know, kind of protest or, or just a, a sneer, you know, uh, somebody took a look at their work. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, the thing about artists, though, is that, um, you know, art in the United States, at least, you know, is still a, a rather, you know, uh, institutionalized um, thing. You know, it happens in museums and it happens in dedicated spaces for art. You know, there are certainly street artists who are um, creating, you know, work, but, you know, it, you know, it also in a lot of ways has been institutionalized in this country. Um, and so because of that, I think that they might be a bit shielded from, uh, from protests. I don't know if that's true. That's a guess. Um, but, you know, at the same time, um, there's an artist, and oh my goodness, what is her name? She designed uh, one of the, the posters for, um, you know, the, the big climate rally march that, uh, you know, happened recently. Um, I'll think of her name, <laughs> and I'll email it to you. Okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting to see how, um, you know, artists, can kind of participate in a more formal kind of activism by doing things like that. Um, you know, it's one thing to create a piece of art, have it in a gallery um, that you know speaks to climate change. It's another to create a piece of art, put it into the hands of marchers, mm. and to have them, you know, you know, march through a major, you know, American city. Well, it's um, um, it's creating a third thing, right? It, I mean, the art piece of artwork itself is one thing but then to then multiply it and put it in I mean that expression is something else entirely other than the artwork itself so that's that's a beautiful oh, thing yeah. yeah oh yeah yeah absolutely absolutely I mean we could take this you know so far as to start asking the question you know what is art you yeah. know I think on one hand it's uh, on one very big hand it all depends on context um but, you know, another way of looking at it, too, is that um, you know, some of the artists that I spoke to, not all of them, but many of them, you know, actually identify as activists and as a kind of climate communicator. You know, someone who sees it upon themselves to, you know, try to communicate to the general public, um, you know, why we should take climate change seriously. And so that line between 
you know, activist and artist is already blurred. Um, before we even talk about moving the art out of a museum and into a protest. Um, I think, and I think that's kind of the case across the board of, uh, of any artistic type who talks about climate change or addresses climate change in their work. Um, that line between activists and artists frequently becomes blurred. Hmm. Well, it sounds like you're doing tremendous work in terms of building a community between and within artists, and I, I think that's the key as well to, you know, be able to find your uh, your own identity, but um, to find support among others who are like yourself. Um, you know, there's no greater validation than being part of a community, so... Yeah, well, thank you for saying so. Um, it is uh, a true honor to be able to meet um, you know, many of these people and to learn more about their work and to, um, you know, to bring my own uh, kind of background in, you know, in, in literary theory and criticism to that work to really think through you know, why, why does it matter and you know, how, how does it affect people. Um, it's, it's a really rewarding thing, and uh, I appreciate, uh, you know, the fact that I've been able to have space to write and talk about it, and I so appreciate you for contacting me so that I can talk about it with you, um, and I appreciate all the, the work that you're doing in general with this podcast. It's, it's really great to have um, your voice uh, among, among the rest of us. No, I appreciate that, and I, I appreciate the support, and... Um... You know, if there's uh, anything we can do in the future, I'd love, like I said, I'd love to support the work that you do. I think uh, the arts, like you said, empathy is the key to making progress. And we need to, uh, we need to be active in that creation. Um, if somebody wants to learn more about the work that you, uh, that you do and uh, in terms of coordinating all these different eff efforts, um, is there a website or a way for them to contact you to learn more? personal website, which is amybradywrites, W-R-I-T-E-S, dot com. And on that website, uh, they will find the contact page where they can uh, reach out to me um, via email or a contact form. I read both. <laughs> and on that website, they can also see some of the other work that I've done um, or is forthcoming. So uh, if they feel like they can participate in any way, then I would absolutely love to hear from them. Awesome. Well, I appreciate your taking the time to uh, chat today, um, and we'll have to do it again in the future. I would love that. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you very much.